This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Okay, good morning, everybody. Glad that you're here today. Welcome. If you're visiting, then you should know that the men's room is just to the left outside these doors. Uh, the ladies' room is across the lobby and to the left. Um, so just help yourself to those. Uh, also, there's coffee on the counter just out here to the left, if you haven't gotten that, but it looks like everybody did. And uh, I think we have some biscuits out there for you as well. This is the last of our four Saturday morning Heart for Scripture Cornerstone U classes uh, for the year. Uh, it's been a real joy to uh, read through the Bible together as a congregation and then to have uh, special speakers come in to talk to us about the Bible on Saturday mornings. But even though this is the last Saturday morning Cornerstone U, we do have a Sunday morning Cornerstone U starting on November 6th on the topic of contentment. It's called Finding Contentment, a Rare Jewel in a Restless World. And wouldn't it be wonderful if you could say about your life, I am really content. So I hope you'll take advantage of that class. It starts on November 6th at 9 a.m. It'll be before the Sunday meeting. It'll run for three weeks. We've had some great speakers, of course, in our Saturday series. We had Rick Holland and Stephen Wellam and C.J. Mahaney, but I think uh, today's speaker is probably the most famous of uh, the speakers that we've had. Uh, I think everybody here uh, probably knows Walt, but if you don't, then uh, Walt and Kim and their three children, Rev and Wren and Knox, uh, have been part of our church family for a long time. Walt was part of the pastoral team for about 10 years, sent out to plant Trinity Grace Church in Athens four years ago, I heard this morning. It doesn't seem that long to me. Maybe it does to you guys, <laughs> but uh, four years flew by very quickly. So uh, Walt and Kim and the kids feel very much like just part of the family here. It, it feels very comfortable and normal to have you here speaking to us, Walt. But having said that, uh, Walt is a serious uh, pastor and a good teacher and a scholar, and I know you're really going to be blessed by his teaching today, so please uh, welcome Walt. Well, thank you very much. Do I have some mic in there? Thank you for coming. Spending a Saturday morning right before Tennessee plays at 12. Try to get you out for that. But it is such a joy to be back. Um, we are so aware of just all that happened to us in um, Knoxville. And don't want to hang out too long there because I'll have to work through my emotions. But just aware of God's hand on our lives and uh, God's hand in all that, that brought us to Cornerstone and why it was such a pivotal time um, in uh, bringing us to salvation. Um, I think Cyprian said, uh, the church father Cyprian said, uh, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. I think in a lot of ways the church was a mother to me. Obviously, you know, being instructed under the word of God, being nurtured under the the servant, I mean, the countless number of people that would nurture my faith and then the unspeakable privilege of being able to serve 
uh, as a pastor and elder at Cornerstone was just, it was the pie on the sky, find the sky. It was like, it was like my goal for life. And then we left. So what are you thinking, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but we are, we obviously grateful we, we did and, and, uh, and follow the Lord, but always count this place dear to us. So if you would flip with me to uh, uh, Psalm 19. Um, maybe in the spirit of the reformers, I want us to read uh, several verses um, in unison. So read them together and that makes, make sure we're all good and awake. And then uh, I'll dive into my outline. But just Psalm 19, this this precious psalm uh, that, that tells us of uh, so many of the characteristics and the greatness of the Word of God. So beginning in verse 7, I'd love to read this just responsibility, uh, respo- uh, I mean unison all the way to 11. So please look there with me and read with me. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Yes, praise the Lord. Let me just pray for our time. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for these few moments that we've set aside to learn about your scriptures, learn about what the reformers teach. We pray that in your light, we would see light, that you would come by your spirit to illumine the words of scripture and cause them to uh, dwell deeply in our hearts. Transform us, God, that we'd be warned by these words. That we'd see the great reward in these words. And that we would be people who live by Scripture alone. Uh, so come, uh, uh, work. Lord, Not just a, let this not just be a historical exercise. Uh, let this be a, a transformational, a devotional exercise instructing us and training us in righteousness. So we ask for that and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I hope you got an outline on the way in and there's a number of things in there. But just by way of introduction, the Reformers, you know, we often know about the Reformation and this this coming Sunday will be Reformation Sunday, October 30th, uh, celebrating Reformation Day, October 31st. And so uh, the Reformers, we talk about these five solas that marked the Reformation, you know, sola gratia, sola fide, uh, um, sola Christus, sola Deo gloria, and sola scriptura. Uh, you know, the reformers, though, they didn't really teach that there were five solas. We often say they taught these things, scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, glory to God alone, but they didn't really teach that there were five. In fact, Wikipedia and you know everything on the internet should be trusted. Wikipedia says they didn't appear until 1936. Now I don't agree with that. But, but while the Reformation, reformers didn't teach them 
in this codified form, these five solas, the reason they've been taught for so many years, they helpfully summarize and define what the reformers taught. You know, uh, uh, the, the, the greatest sola they taught was faith alone. Uh, many have said the central doctrine of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. You may have heard the statement that Martin Luther said, justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. It's an incredibly important statement historically, but also theologically. And so faith alone is what they say is the material principle of the Reformation. It's the core matter. So you you all heard the story probably about uh, Martin Luther's study in Romans 1. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And so that that was the core matter. That's what, what became the central principle, the central matter of the Reformation. But while... Uh, the central matter, the material principle of the Reformation is sola fide. Many have said the formal principle is sola scriptura. The idea is that the, uh, the, the uh, material principle, that's the central doctrine, doctrine, the formal principle, the place it came from, the place upon which it stands is sola scriptura. You know, the, the place where sola fide was rediscovered was in Scripture alone. The confidence that sola fide is true and right is based on the witness of Scripture alone. And in a very poetic way, Robert Farrar Kappen puts these principles together when he says the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggeringly, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism, a whole cellar full of 1,500-proof, 1,500-year-old, 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace of bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. And so that brings together this formal principle, this material principle, that they, they found it in Scripture, the This formal principle of the Reformation, they found it in Scripture alone. And the truth they found is that God saves us single-handedly. God needs no helpers. God is best left alone. So really, the Reformation, and you could argue historically, the first of those solas that emerges is Scripture alone. The historian G.R. Elton said... If there is a single thread running through the whole history of the Reformation, it is the explosive and renovating and often disintegrating effect of the Bible. That's an incredible statement. The explosive effect. That's very much what, what, what uh, uh, Martin Luther had and John Calvin, these guys, the way it spread throughout the world, an explosive effect, a renovating effect. I mean, that's why uh, the Reformation says we're always reforming, always reforming, because we're always in this work of, of renovation. We're always trying to purify our understanding or, or, or get more and more accurate our understanding of Scripture until we see the Lord face to face and the imperfect becomes perfect. We will be doing that, but also disintegrating because it's destroying things in its way. And so the story of the Reformation is a story of countless people recovering Scripture alone as our supreme and final authority and as the rule of faith and life. One man said nearly a century after the Reformation, the Bible, the Bible only, I say, is the religion 
of the Protestants, those who are protesting against other doctrines and standing for something different. So what did the Reformers teach about Scripture? Now, this is a fascinating thing to study and, um, and kind of come to a full understanding of what I a full understanding of what I'd read on this. And so I'm not trying to cover all that the reformers said on scripture. Uh, that would take us a long time. Um, but I'm going to try to put together four s- uh, central uh, of most important uh, doctrines uh, about scripture. And I'll hit a few things on the way as well. So four very important principles. They articulated and applied to scripture, and I guess we'll kind of do this like most of these things. I really don't know how long this outline's going to take. It's about 19 pages, so we'll see. Um, but uh, we'll just break probably after uh, the Doctrine 2 and then um, and again after Doctrine 4 and come back. And if you have any questions, you can, you can ask along the way or you can write something in your margin and we'll circle back and do it. But the, the first is the supreme authority of Scripture. So Roman numeral 1, the supreme authority of Scripture. The question that was pushed to the forefront of the Reformation was, what is the proper basis for all that we believe about God and all that we believe about life? Uh, what, what, what's the proper uh, 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 pl- basis for doctrine, for, for forming theology about God? And just to walk through kind of the historical development, we were talking a little bit about this. My kids know a song about the 95 Theses, so we're, they were singing that in the car on the way up. And so, we, we, you know, it developed. It, it wasn't like, uh, uh, you know, Joseph Smith, we study, well, we don't study, but uh, you may have read about Mormonism, like these golden tablets that fell from the sky, and Joseph Smith just wrote it all down. That's not exactly how the Reformation came together. Um, there, there was certainly, it began with the 95 Theses, but there, there was... What exactly Martin Luther ended up doing was not something new he would do at the beginning. It developed. And that's what is fascinating to study. So one of the important things is the Lipsig debate. So the 95 Theses, the reason we were talking about on the way up, is when he na- nailed those to the, uh, the, the uh, castle doors in Wittenberg, it was, a, it, was, it was a declaration of a need for a debate. It was a call for a debate, an invitation for a debate to talk about the practice of indulgences. Well, there's another uh, important debate and Lipsig several years later, um, you know, and so we begin uh, our, our discussion of the Reformation with Martin Luther as would, would seem appropriate. And so uh, the supreme authority of Scripture was discovered by him. Obviously, we know October 31st, 1517, he, he nailed those 95 theses to the castle door and began the Reformation. Well, two years later, uh, Luther was involved in uh, in, a, 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 uh, in the so-called Lipsig debate with a leading Catholic theologian named John Ect. Now, Ect, his last name, Ect means corner. And so uh, Ect stumped Luther in this debate. And so they say Luther was boxed into a corner by a corner. So that's an old historical joke. You can like it or not, but it's in like every book I read. So he was boxed into a corner by a corner. What was going on, um, he was stumped by Echt. Luther was stumped by Echt because Echt accused him of advocating certain teachers of John Huss who was condemned as a heretic. And so anybody want to, well, maybe I won't ask a question yet, but so Luther rejected the accusation at first. However, and they took a lunch break, 
Over lunch, Luther examined the records of the council in which Huss was uh, deemed, condemned as a heretic, and found that he was advocating the same teaching as John Huss. So when the debate resumed in the afternoon, he said, I am a Hussite. Now, you know, we'll do a little interaction. Why would that be a problem for him to admit he's a Hussite? He was condemned as a heretic. Okay, to take a step forward, why would, why would it be a problem for him to agree with a heretic? Yes, yes. Any, anybody want to take that a step further? Yes, um, that, that would certainly come. I think, uh, I think to take it a little bit further, uh, for him to agree with a heretic and say that this is the right teaching of Scripture is for him to say that there's an authority greater than the church. Do you understand? So that, that you know, it, it seems parochial. It seems kind of off the subject. But actually what happened to Luther in that debate crystallized what he was thinking. To agree that John Huss was right was to declare that the church was wrong because of a greater authority in Scripture alone. So he found them, he found Huss's teaching to be biblical, even though Huss was condemned by the church. And th- therefore he was saying that the authority of the Bible is a greater authority than the authority of the Pope. Uh, we have this outline, or we have this quote in your outline. The following year, Luther summarized what he believed negatively. He said, what is asserted without the scriptures or proven revelation may be held as an opinion, but need not be de- believed. So that was kind of the beginning of this, or that was a crystallization of what Luther thought uh, uh, the proper placing and the proper relation of the church and, and the tradition, the teaching of the Pope. Carl Truman says, after the Lipsig debate, he said, while the result of the actual debate was somewhat equivocal, somewhat equal, Luther returned to Wittenberg as the clear champion of the new Reformation movement. So we point back to, to, uh, to uh, October 31st, 1517, but in a lot of ways, this is you know, uh, the most important historical moment when Luther deems it only right to stand, or uh, when Luther deems Scripture as a more supreme authority than the teaching of any men. So we, you know, uh, second point there, the historical development, you probably know about the Diet of Worms. Uh, Two years later, Luther was summoned to the city of Worms in April 1521 to stand trial for his teaching with the threat of excommunication. It was there that after much questioning examination, Luther refused to recant and famously said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the popes or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither right nor safe to go against uh, conscience. Now, this is where some people say, here I stand, I can do no other. There's actually no historical record that he actually said that. But this is what 
what he said. It's, it's neither right or safe me to go against conscience. My conscience is captive by the word of God alone. So you see the development, him saying I'm a Hussite to anything that's not proven in scripture must be viewed as human opinion to my conscience is cap- captive by the word of God alone. So B, the biblical foundation. So is this right? Is what Luther discovered uh, uh, the, the right teaching of scripture? In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, uh, the verses we'll reference throughout the day, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is breathed out, literally exhaled by God. That's a statement talking about it. It's authority. It's inspired by God. Uh, uh, 2 Peter 1 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's another statement. And and y'all studied this with um, Dr. Wellam. But men spoke from God such as they were carried along by the Spirit. You know, Uh, they, were, they, were, they, they said what God said. You know, when we begin to talk about inspiration, I'm not going to hang out here long. We, we begin to think one of two things happened, that God took control of the man and said what he wa- whatever he wanted to say through him. That's essentially what Mormonism is. He got these golden tablets and he promised to just transcribe what he got from heaven. So, it, so it's a, a dictation type of inspiration. Or we think of inspiration as being the human authors were able to say whatever they wanted. But this tells us something much more amazing that the biblical truth is that God inspired human authors to write down his authoritative word through their own histories, personalities, and characteristics that God, uh, imbu- uh, he, 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 he made scripture come to life in such a way that it bore the authority as if it spoke directly from his mouth. Indeed it was. So that cannot be said of church traditions, councils, or leaders. So the meaning, uh, 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 C, the meaning of sola scriptura is, firstly, that scripture is the supreme and final authority. That scripture is the highest authority. The second, now I'm quoting confessions and things like that. Uh, I don't know if I'll read all of them, but they're trying to give you a, an understanding. Because one of the things that came after the after Reformation is just confessions in the Reformed faith all throughout the world. And so one is the second Helvetic confession. We believe and confess that the canonical scriptures of the holy prophets and apostles of both testaments to be the true word of God, to have sufficient authority of themselves, not of men. For God himself spake, don't you love that? Spake to the fathers, prophets, apostles, and still speaks to us. So the confession articulates the basis of God, Scripture's authority by how it came about. But why do you think it includes that line that he still speaks? Why would that be important to articulate biblically that he not just spake uh, uh, in a past tense, but still speaks in an active tense? We should study him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's upholding the biblical truth that, that, that Scripture is a sufficient 
authority for every generation. And so what, what it, one of the biggest attacks against the authority of Scripture is, ah, that's just what they said to people back then and there, you know. That's what's wrong with Paul in 1 Timothy. It was just a cultural argument. And there's certainly cultural things woven into Scripture, but, but it's very dangerous. It's, a, it's, a, it's an archaic text, you know. It's stuck in time. But because it's inspired by God, it speaks and has sufficient authority for all people at all times. So scripture is, and this, this may be like, feel like Captain Obvious and we don't need to, to dwell on it, but scripture is above church traditions, councils, leaders, and authority not dependent on him. Therefore, the church and t- its teaching must not be elevated above or alongside scripture because it does not have the same authority. You know, today we're facing... We're not facing the same challenges of Scripture's authority as the reformers were with, the, uh, with, the, uh, with Catholicism. But we're facing many challenges to, to this, this, this standing on the conviction of Scripture alone. Um, and the reason, in, in a lot of ways, is the development of Christianity in America. As I was listening to and reading an article just the other day talking about uh, that America has changed uh, in its relation to Christianity um, this guy named Aaron Wren articulated that there was until like 1994, it was a positive world towards Christianity. So like essentially it was a good thing if you're a Christian, you know, maybe on your LinkedIn or on your Twitter handle or on your Facebook, you know, you'd put that Bible verse up. It was a good thing. It might get you employed. After 94 to like two, 2014, he says we were in a neutral world where, where people were, they didn't care one way or the other. You could be who, who you, who you were. You know, and, and uh, in, in regards to Christianity, he would argue now we're in a negative world. So to stand on the things of the Bible is, is not just neutral. It's definitely not positive anymore. It's not just neutral. And obviously we're talking about the headstream of all this, but, but now it's a negative. And so I say that to say the challenges against you standing on the authority of Scripture are only going to increase exponentially. We have no reason to think otherwise. And so we must. I'll say, a few, I'll, I'll say many more things about that as we go. Uh, kind of sub-point two, Scripture is the only rule of faith and life. So it's the only authority for, the only basis for decisions, the only basis for what is true and good and right, but it's also only the rule. Uh, they had this phrase, I don't know if we put this in there, but it's the, uh, Scripture is the Norma Normans. It's the determining norm for all of faith and life. Scripture tells us what is black and white, what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. Isaiah 5 says, Woe to you when you have leaders who don't know right from wrong, who call evil good and good evil. Well, the place we go to to define good and right and beautiful and upstanding and all these things is Scripture. It's the norm that regulates and determines everything. So, so, so that's positively. It's the norm that regulates everything. Negatively, that means everything must be tested by Scripture. In the 39 articles, Thomas Chalmers, not Chalmers, Thomas Cramer. Chalmers was like the uh, Canterbury Tales, right? Uh, I've left this in his language so that there's a risk that I might not remember how, what these words are. But, uh, I, but it is fascinating, the old English. 
Uh, Holy Scripture conveyeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite, or, uh, or as necessary, required as necessary to salvation. You see what's, you see what's going on there. It's, it's, it's all things necessary so that whatever is read therein, nor proved, whatever not read therein, nor proved thereby is not to be required of any man. So that's, that's putting it in very negative language. It's because negative, you know, the, the negatives actually prove what's true in a lot of ways. And so it should not be, it's not, anything's not read therein, proved thereby, is, it should not be required of any man or believed as an article of the faith. Scripture is the canon. Uh, that's just a word, we talk about the canon, the canonical Bible. Canon is just a word for rod, a rule. Uh, so, so Scripture is the rule. Um, obviously, Scripture doesn't teach us all we want to know. It doesn't tell us who to marry. It doesn't tell us where to live. It doesn't tell us what to eat. It doesn't tell us about diets, regardless of what people go in there and try to find. It's like we always want the Bible-approved diet, you know, the Daniel diet. Greg's diet definitely would not be in there. <laughs> it does not have the biblical stamp, but... <laughs> But Scripture does what they're saying is tells us all that we need to know. Westminster Confession of Faith, question two, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God? The Word of God which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. So what are, you know, what are the implications of this for us? And you know, um, the first is the, the Word of God must be personally read and applied. In the Reformation, uh, this conviction of sola scriptura led to an increasing reading of and depends on the Word of God. After the invention of the printing press, this conviction led to a desire to translate the Bible into every language. It was believed at, at, uh, at, at Luther's death, there were 500,000 copies of his German translation of the Bible. That is amazing. He holed himself up in this tower and translated the Bible into German. Um, the, clear tri- the clear drive. So there's so much teaching, you know. The church that we're in right now is ber- a lot of ways bereft of teaching. Calvin and Calvin preached like, 30 times a week. He just, and the church is just eager. And if you didn't come to the meeting, they'd chase you down. <laughs> You'd be in big trouble because they were serious about it. But they, it was just filled with teaching. And all of it was the drive so that you would stand personally on the Word of God alone. So in the Middle Ages, you stood on, the, on your priest's faith. You stood on the bishop's faith. You stood on the pope's faith. Most people couldn't even read. Uh, the Latin. And so you stood on somebody else. So they said, you we want to be convictional, personally convictional. One of the men who devoted his life to translating the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English that forms a lot of the basis, or a lot of the core of all our, our translation, of, even of the ESV, uh, is William Tyndale. John Piper has this fascinating thing where he goes through all the, the things that we love, the words that we love, uh, in our in our in the ESV that come directly from Tyndale's translation, which is really cool. 
I don't remember any of them right now, so sorry about that. Um, but there's lots of great ones. On one occasion, in a dispute with somebody, he was like, what are you doing? You know, do, spending all your time in translation. He's burned at the stake for it. He said, if God spare my life before many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of Scripture than thou dost. That's right. It wasn't a reformation of the ivory tower sitting leaders. It was a reformation of the people. The reformation of the church, which searches a people, uh, all people. And so that's what they were after. It's, for us, it's no less true. One of the things that is, is fascinating is for that reason, they, they, Luther devoted tons of his time, more, more time than Calvin, uh, to teaching you how to read the Bible personally. And Dr. Piper in his book gets into some of this um, uh, um, in reading the Bible su- supernaturally. Um, and there's other books that do capture a lot of what Luther taught on Scripture. But he said the three rules for studying the Bible were prayer, meditation, and temptation. Now, I doubt temptation's been up there in your three rules for reading the Bible, but we have this quote for you. He said, as soon as God's word takes root and grows in you, the devil will plague you and make a real doctor of you. He'll make you a real person proficient. And by his attacks, will teach you to seek and love the word of God. What he's saying is, obviously prayer and meditation are vital for understanding the scripture, but temptation is too, because it pushes you. You get, you, obviously, you know this. You can either, either become absorbed in your interpretation of the temptation or you can let the Bible interpret your temptation for you. The only way out alive is the latter. And so that's what Luther's saying. So he's like, it'll make you a doctor because it'll make you understand what Scripture's saying. Second, Subpoint: the Word of God is central to corporate worship. In the Reformation, this conviction led Protestants to strip the altars out of churches. To, you know, uh, um, oh, what was the word for that? But the, I cannot remember. Desacredizing churches or whatever, something like that. Um, but they strip, what? No, but they, they, they stripped the, author out of, uh, the uh, altars out of Scripture, and in place of the altar, they put a pulpit. I remember years ago going to, I, was, I spent some time in Scotland after a mission trip. My, my family's from Scotland, so we found a grave from 1694. How cool is that? Uh, from the Presbyterian ladies, led us up to the grave. And, but uh, we went to church one Sunday, and it's very, very simple, you know, song leader, no fog, no smoke, no worship band. Um, you know, very simple. The guy read, like all you know, announcements and stuff like that, or, or went through the service, led the, led the songs from this smaller pulpit. Then he hiked up. I mean, this is probably twenty five foot twenty foot ceilings, and he hiked up to this pulpit that was at least ten feet high, in a room that maybe fit one hundred twenty five people. He towered over the room. It was amazing. And he stood up there, read the scriptures, and preached the word of God. The symbol, they ripped out so many of the other symbols, all the crucifixes and things like that. In the place, they put a massive symbol. 
The symbol of the supremacy of the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? You actually, in Moby Dick, of all places, there's, there's, a, there's a chapter on the pulpit. And it talks about what the old pulpits looked like, you know. Now we just kind of have a music stand or something, you know. But the, the sacred desk, John Calvin said this. This is just too great of a quote to not read. He said, here then, he's talking to ministers, is the sovereign power with, with which the pastors of the church, by whatever name they be called, ought to be endowed. That, that is, that they may dare boldly to do all things by God's word, may compel all worldly power, glory, wisdom, and exaltation to yield to and obey his majesty. Supported by his power may command all from the highest even to the last. May build up Christ's household and cast down Satan's. May feed the sheep and drive away the wolves. May instruct and exhort the teachable. May accuse, rebuke, and subdue the rebellious and stubborn. May bind and loose. Finally, if need be, may launch thunderbolts and lightnings. But do all things in God's word. Isn't that good? They stood on the authority of God's word alone. So Roman numeral two, the self-attestation of scripture. This is going to be a little bit shorter. Self-attestation of scripture. So if the, the authority of scripture is what's the proper basis for, for, for all that we believe and, and how we live, uh, the self-attestation is kind of asking the question, what is the basis for our belief that scripture is true and trustworthy? Besides the divine origin of it, how do we know we're standing on the divine origin? How do we know we're standing on the authority of God alone? And, and they articulate this thing called the self-attestation of Scripture. Uh, first, and, and Henry Bullinger in 1544 is the one who is believed to first say this. He's a Swiss reformer. In a letter, he said, The books of the Old and New Testament are indisputable, called by the ancients, canonical and authentic, as some say autopistu, or pistoi, uh, uh, automatic faith. Making faith for themselves. Now, we're going to understand more about this argument in a moment, but even without arguments. Uh, John Calvin is, is the one that formulated this most clearly. In the opening book of his Institutes, which we don't have in the bookstore, that, we need to remedy that. The most important book of theology ever written, in my opinion. It, it is fabulous, and you can read it. I'm, I'm telling you, everybody in this room can read it. It's, it's very devotional. It's not nearly, Calvin's not nearly as bad as guys your history teacher told you in high school, you know? He and Jonathan Edwards are really not that bad. Uh, and it's just a beautiful, wonderful book. But he develops this idea more, more clearly in a discussion about Scripture in the opening book. Uh, and it's four books over two volumes. But um, Calvin argues that many believe the Scriptures are true and should be accepted because the church has said so. Okay? So you're seeing the way this, this, this theology is built up. So many believe they should, they should be accepted because the church has said so and commanded believers to receive the Bibles but exclude other books. Calvin argues that believing the truth, of, believing Scripture is true because the church said so is baseless. 
Now, we may think, what's this argument all about? But it gets somewhere really good. If the church is, sta- is established on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, then the teaching of the apostles and prophets had authority before the church. Luther famously said, the church is a creature of the word. It's a product of the word. So it can't be placed in an authority of the word. So uh, Calvin said, it's utterly vain to pretend that the power of judging scripture so lies with the church. That its certainty depends upon churchly assent. Thus, while the church receives and gives its seal of approval to the scriptures, it does not therefore render authentic what is otherwise doubtful or controversial. So the church is not what makes it true is what he's saying. It doesn't make sense. The church comes after scripture, as I said a moment ago, as a creature of it. So what is the proper basis? And we have these quotes in your outline. Scripture is self-authenticated. Autopistos. That's that same word that we saw with, with uh, Bullinger. We believe neither by our own nor by anyone else's judgment that Scripture is from God. But above human judgment, we affirm with utter certainty, just as if we were gazing on the majesty of God himself, that it has flowed to us from the very mouth of God by the ministry of men. He says in another place, Truth is cleared of all doubt when, not sustained by external props, it serves as its own support. Now that's Calvin at his best. Truth is cleared of all doubt when not sustained, no external scaffolding, it serves its own support. Scripture is the supreme authority because Scripture stands on its own. So how do we know that? What is Scripture, so, so to get, help us understand this from a biblical standpoint, what does Scripture say about Scripture? Obviously, Scripture claims that God is the author of Scripture, and therefore the sole basis of Scripture is in the authority of God, and in the, in the authority of Scripture. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And so it's, it, it stands on its own authority. It, it attests to its own authority. Strikingly, in, in Jesus' temptation, Three times, uh, he says, it is written. Jesus is standing on the word of God alone without any other confirmations, not confirmation of, of what the devil might do for him or, or what God might do if he jumps off that and waits for God to pick him up. Uh, he stands on the authority of, God, a word, a, a, a authority of the word of God to express the perfect and authoritative will of God even for the Son of God in temptation. So scripture stands on its own. The meaning of self-attestation is, uh, sub point one, Scripture is the Word of God because it says it is. Now, if you ever try that argument out, somebody say, that's a circular argument. Uh, you know, a circular argument is an argument that can go either way. Like Jake runs well because he is a good runner. So you can, either clause can be a dependent clause. That makes sense? So Jake is a good runner because he runs well. Jake runs well because he's a good runner. Some people would say that's, that's kind of what you're saying when you say Scripture is the Word of God because it says it is. But the, the argument of Calvin was different because he's saying this. He's saying, saying that the Bible is the Word of God because it says it is, is not circular because it depends on God's judgment 
above any other. So in saying that the Bible is the word of God, I know things might be a little foggy upstairs trying to figure this out. Saying that the Bible is the word of God because it says it is, is the only way to stand on God's assessment of the Bible and not our own. Any other way of standing on the authority of the Bible means we're standing on someone's human assessment. It could have been the church, but it could have been our own, which we'll get into in a moment. So any, way of our, any other way of argumentation means our belief that the Bible is the word of God is based on human judgment and our own human assessment. Uh, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, 1-4, says the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the word of God. The Bible is the Word of God because it says it is. Now, um, the challenges to believe in the Bible uh, 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 continued after the Reformation. Um, In the Enlightenment, man is the measure of all things, and autonomous human reason is the highest authority. So, everybody's seen, uh, uh, is it Da Vinci or whatever? The man, you know, the measure of all things. And and so, too, when they came to the Bible, uh, they became the, the assessor of what is good or right in the Bible. And there also arose after that kind of a rationalistic way of understanding the Bible. Anything that could not be explained according to reason or natural causes had to be thrown out. I mean, one of the, one of the fascinating books, wrote this book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus years ago. And, and so they, they, they threw out everything, uh, all miracles. So essentially kind of like Thomas Jefferson did. And so they have to explain away what happened. So what happened after the crucifixion? Well, Jesus slunk away in a cave and nursed himself back to hell for a few days or something like that. Or what happened when Jesus was walking on water? Well, there was actually a sandbar right where he was walking that the disciples didn't see. How amazing is that? One person even said a raft. He was walking on a raft. So it's just this rationalistic thing going on. There also arose higher criticism that sought to dissect the Bible and discern whether it's authoritative, saying there's, you know, there's these different writers. The Old Testament, they, they broke apart the Old Testament in and, and so many ways. And then the New Testament, obviously, you know, these parts of, Second Peter are true, these parts are not, these parts were added, whatever, uh, redacted later. Uh, and then in the 20th century, the, the, uh, the attacks on infallibility and er- inerrancy of the Bible. We cannot take apart each of these developments, but they all have this common similarity. Each of them is a shifting of authority away from God onto a human, onto a human assessment and, and human reason and human understanding. It's really important. And... and um, that we believe the Bible is what it says it is because it says it is. And that sounds scandalous, and it is. Uh-oh. I don't know if that's uh, old. Okay, that's through. Um, so, sub-point two, the belief that Scripture is the Word of God is still fortified by other arguments, but only Secondarily. Many relig- religious books claim to be d- divine and authentic. How, how then do we discern the Bible is different from the teaching of other, other religious books? After establishing the truth that the Bible is the word of God, because it says it is, the characteristics of Scripture are useful aids. So Calvin said somewhere, you know, these useful aids to believe in the Bible is what it says it is, is the economy of divine wisdom. So the, so the, 
the, the expression of divine wisdom so well ordered and disposed, the completely heavenly character of its doctrine, savoring of nothing earthly, the beautiful agreement of all of its parts. So the unity of scripture is very important for undergirding this argument. Now, if, you, if you've been studying or you know anything about what's, what's gone on the past 50 years, 70 years in, in New Testament studies, there was a discovery in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, uh, uh, um, uh, of a number of texts that people believe are authentic early Christian texts. So texts like the Gospel of Thomas, which has made it everywhere because of Bart Ehrman. Um, and, well, I'm not worried about the text making it everywhere, but I'm worried about his interpretation of the text. But uh, so, and Bart Ehrman's a teacher at University of North Carolina. Uh, the discovery led to quite a stir in the study of the origin. Well, you could study for yourself all these. I've read scores of the Nag Hammadis. The Gospel of Thomas, for lack of a better way to say it, these secondary proofs, it doesn't pass the smell test. Like, you can read it for yourself. You don't need somebody to say that it's not true. Just read it. It doesn't, it doesn't line up. It doesn't agree with the rest of the New Testament. There's no, I mean, obviously, there's all these other arguments about why are there just, such a narrow, uh, such a small number of these translations. Well, because the church discarded them. And so you can have those, but even just the smell test, if you go and read it, the sniff test, so to speak. uh, There's, there's many inconsistencies and differences and concerns. So don't be, (laughs) don't be dismayed when somebody says something like that. Um, because there, it's led to so, so much misinterpretation of what was going on in the New Testament. I mean, in the, in the first century after the New Testament, the closing of the canon. So, the implications. Uh, uh, implications of self-attestment of Scripture. And I, I realize these implications are blurring a little bit, but that's okay. Scripture is the, the authoritative word of God for us, to us. John Piper, I mean, J.I. Packer says, the Bible should be thought of not statically. So that's, I forget who, who said that, Greg in the back. Uh, not statically, not stuck in time, you know, but dynamically. Not merely as what God has said long ago, but as what he says still. In other words, Holy Scripture should be thought of as God preaching. God preaching to me every time I read it or hear any part of it. God the Father preaching God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit. That is so helpful. Years ago, Piper wrote this, this devotional saying, this morning I heard the voice of God. Now, it was, a, it, was a, it was a cliffhanger. You know, it was a teaser. Everybody thought, Piper heard from the Lord, you know. He's a charismatic. We believe it now. Uh, and, and so everybody ran to read it. What he's saying is, I, I took it up. I heard the Lord, Lord of uh, I heard the, the word of God this morning. That's what it means, and so we stand on the authoritative word of God because it is self-attesting. It it stands on its own footing, and it stands to speak into our life. Subpoint B there: belief that the the Scripture is authoritative word of God is strengthened through study. People say the Bible is filled with contradictions, fallacies. I just say, come get, let's get a cup of coffee. Let's talk through this. I don't, I don't, I don't believe you. I'm not, I'm not standing with you. You know, uh, you know, don't, and don't be worried. Like, if the Bible is self-attesting, it is autopistos. If it stands on its own footing, then you just say, bring your questions. 
You know, sometimes I think as Christians, we get, we get worked up, you know. Oh, my gosh. You believe they question the inheritance of the Bible? You, well, we all do, of course. You don't wrestle through doubt, but take it to Scripture. And it's wonderful. For, uh, I'm not going to read that Westminster Confession there, but that uh, it goes through that. You know, we strengthen our, be, our, our belief in the Bible, that the Bible is the Word of God through study, taking note of these things taking note of what it says about itself and rooting ourselves and anchoring ourselves in what it said. Uh, Subpoint three, belief that Scripture is the authoritative Word of God most clearly explains canon and the way the early church received Scripture. Now, this is going a little bit off my subject, but I think it's very important to get for anybody at UT or anybody that's in a... I was a religious studies major at UT, so I had to interact with all this stuff. Uh, our Bible... Is not, we have to admit, our Bible is not the Bible that Jesus had. It's not what he unrolled at Capernaum in the synagogue. Nor is it the Bible that the apostles had. When, when, Pipe, I mean, when Paul says, bring me the parchments, he's not talking about everything you got. Nor even the Bible that the first century Christians had. What are we going to do? You know, I mean, and so people say, some, some say the Bible just contains part of the, part of the story, you know. It just contains part of it. We know for a fact that, that Paul has, um, he wrote two other letters to the Corinthians. We have second and fourth Corinthians, if we want to be accurate. Now what would we do if we found first and third? Well, others say, uh, the Bible's not based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. Bart Ehrman famously says this, the stories of the Bible were passed down over the years. So, they, you know, like a game of telephone. We were sitting at, at lunch after church a couple weeks ago, and one of my kids brought up the idea of doing telephone with a mix of adults and kids. And I forget, I'm not going to tell you what it was. I do remember now. But, uh, but uh, it didn't end up the way it started. And so they think about that. You, have you ever seen that movie, The Life of Brian, by the uh, Mighty Python guys, you know? And it's like the, it, it's dramatizing the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, it's just like Jesus is speaking up on the hill. They can't hear him. What did he say? You know, and they're, they're misinterpreting the Beatitudes. So that's what the Bible is, you know? It's just the best shot at capturing what Jesus said. Others say the Bible is just a collection of letters that were chosen by the powerful people. That's what they say about Nakamadi, that the, you know, the, you know, we live in a power world, you know, the, the, the powerful oppress the, the, uh, the unpowerful and the uh, superior oppress the inferior. And so that's what was going on in the New Testament. They just pushed them out of the way. Um, still others uh, uh, make a big deal about the fact that the final known collection of all the 27 books of the New Testament was not believed to be found until thir- 350 A.D. So how do we entangle these questions? This could be a whole morning, but we can't do it. Without untangling every detail, I want to argue that the most plausible explanation for the gradual reception of the canon during the first, two cent- ter- the first century, two very important things were happening. Jesus taught with the authority of God before many eyewitnesses, primarily apostles, and those eyewitnesses continued to tell his story. One of the most fascinating things of the New Testament is a number of names. Why are there names in there? There's names in there 
So, and it's very proven, uh, the name studies. So if it's, um, you know, uh, Bartimaeus, that, that, that literally means son of Timaeus. So for some reason, his name wasn't included, maybe because it was Judas and they didn't want get people to get mixed up. So the naming is not just a name. It's a name to distinguish them from someone else who has the same name. So what he's saying is go ask him. Go ask son of Timaeus what happened when he was dragged out to the side of the road. And so, that, so, you know, and so they continued to tell the story. 30 years after his death, the apostles began to record their eyewitness testimony. Mark is Peter's gospel. I don't have time to defend that, but we believe Peter was with Mark in Rome when that was written down in A.D. 64. Matthew is Levi, one of the apostles. Luke is the doctor mentioned by Paul and many others. Lastly, John is also an apostle. And so the, the, the apostles were, were, they were sharing, the, they're, they're sharing their stories, their, their authoritative stories, but also they were preaching the gospel and certain apostles were writing letters to be read. And so I would argue the most plausible understanding for the gradual reception of the New Testament Firstly, the books didn't just appear out of thin air like the golden tablets for Mormonism. They came gradually in time to people. The apostles, I mean, the, the, the gospels that were received and recognized by the church continued to be read, copied, and shared. The gospels that were not received and recognized fell away and were not copied. The letters of the New Testament that were received and recognized by the church continued to be, when I, and I say church, I'm not saying big C, big guys in power, but the people, you, they continued to be read, copied, and shared, including other letters by the, the Apostle Paul. Why? Because the Scriptures are self-attesting. They create their own faith. Why is First and Third Corinthians not in our Bible? Because they weren't in the same way inspired by God. And so, if we did find them, we would reject them. I mean, we would read them for history's sake. That's the most plausible explanation. The church did not receive certain books because the church leaders recognized them in the 3rd or 4th century. Church leaders recognized certain books because the church received them years later. If you're, fat, if you're interested in this, there's a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham that is amazing. It is very very, very heavy sledding, but it's amazing. Maybe one less varied, but it's, it's, it's heavy, but it's, it is really fascinating about names and then about, so the church had already recognized the divine authorship, the self-attesting authorship inspiration of those books and received them. They received them as scripture. So too must we. All right, this, that's a good place to pause. Let's pause. Can we take 10? 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Come back. Grab a biscuit. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash you.